If you are able, please stand with me for the reading of the scripture. Psalm 51, 1-9. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Yet you desired faithful, faithfulness even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. Good morning to everyone. We're in a sermon series on the Psalms. And one of the things I hope we're you're seeing, we're seeing, is that uh, the Psalms give us a vocabulary for prayer. They give us words to speak to God in all kinds of circumstances. And I've been trying to pick out Psalms that cover a wide range of these. We've had a Psalm of praise, we've had a Psalm of trust, and today we come to confession. A few weeks ago, I was, I was meeting here in my study a uh, retired Catholic priest. He had reached out to me, he lives in the area, because he had read a book about the Amish and he wanted to learn more about Amish and Mennonites, so he reached out to me. I couldn't help him too much with the Amish, but I could help him with the Mennonites. And as we were talking, he was, he's, he's an older guy. He was talking about how in the 60s, when he first became a priest, uh, you, you would have to line up to, get, uh, to have time for confession. Uh, and he said that is not the case now. Like, you can just zip through the line uh, at confession. And as we're talking, I was reflecting on, on my own tradition, our own tradition, and I said, you know, at one point, the, the older folks remember that, that when, before communion, you would come before the bishop, and you would be asked, are you right with God and with your brothers and sisters? Do you remember that? Shall we bring that back? I, you know, I, nobody, uh, nobody has ever come up to me and say, like, Pastor Matthew, can we bring that back? I, re- I miss that. And I give you these two examples just to say, I think we struggle with confession and self-examination, not just in various streams of the Christian faith. Why is that? Well, go with me to, the the Lord's Prayer is such an amazing prayer. It's a prayer that teaches us to pray. Uh, And one of the things about the Lord's Prayer, I, I was imagining this week, the Lord's Prayer is kind of like a house or a cathedral. It's got all these different rooms. Uh, And and it will take you, if you go through the Lord's Prayer and the petitions, you'll go to all these various rooms. So, for example, our Father who art in heaven. It takes you to a space, to a room where you sit and you can soak up the love of a heavenly parent whose intentions for you are good, who loves you. you. You remind yourself, I am a beloved child of God. You sit in that space. And then you move on to another room. Hallowed be your name. And this is a space where we can offer praise to God. We keep moving. Give us today our daily bread. This is the space. This is the room where we walk in there, 
and we tell God what we need. And then we have the room that Jesus gives us, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. And I think this, of these various rooms, if we imagine the Lord's Prayer that way, I think this is the one we just typically want to blow right past. Why is that? I think I've encountered a few different reasons for that. For one, for some of us, this is a dangerous space. Like if we were to walk into this room and really hang out in this room, this would be a very vulnerable, even dangerous space. We, we feel like the, the one that we will meet in this is a condemner, will be exposed, it's an accuser, or, or maybe that, that God will be disappointed with us. That if we go in this room, we're going to leave kind of with our head down in shame. So that's one reason. Why do we skip over confession? I think that's one reason. But there's a, there's a couple of very different ones, too. This is maybe more common today. Rather than an accuser inside, it's someone that's more like kind of like a grandmother, grandfather, who just kind of winks at your sin. Right? It's not a big deal. Come on in. Let's talk about it. Or there's another kind that's just, I don't even need to go in there. If there's a God in there, that God is not concerned about my sin. I don't need to hang out in there. And so I think there's these various reasons, some of them quite different from each other, why we do not want to move into this confessional space. And what we need, and this is where the Psalter is so helpful, we need a guide. We need help. Psalm 51 is an incredible psalm to help us with uh, confession. It's a longer psalm, so we're going to take two weeks to do it, so you can look forward to next week being in the, in the, the, the confession. But I want to do it because I don't want to rush through this. And, and here's the thing you need to keep in front of you as we go through this psalm. Towards the end, or actually after the middle, the psalmist says, restore to me the joy of your salvation. Like you need to know as we move into this kind of challenging territory, where are we going? We're going in hopes of the restoration of the joy of salvation, right? If we don't kind of see that on the horizon, we're not going to want to move into this space at all. So I invite you, if you've got your Bible, it's Psalm 51. You'll see at the top of your psalm, and a number of psalms have this, you'll see a heading, and the heading says this, a psalm of David when the prophet Nathan came to him after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba. So it's not entirely clear if David composed this psalm. He might have composed part of it and then somebody else finished it, there's some language about building walls towards the end of the, the psalm, which indicates it's probably at least part of it was composed after, later, because there wasn't those walls at the time. Um, or it might have been someone that just said, man, a, a song, I'm going to compose this psalm, and this really maps on to this very lurid, messed up story we read about in David. And let me just remind you, you probably know this story, but let me remind you of this story in 2 Samuel. So David's king at this point He's out walking on a roof in the evening. He sees this beautiful woman, Bathsheba, and he sends his staff to go get Bathsheba to bring her back to his place. He sleeps with her. She becomes pregnant, which is problematic for many reasons. Like, I can't even, I can't go into all the ways this is very, very problematic. Uh, we don't have time for that. But the big problem in the story is that Bathsheba's pregnant, Bathsheba's married, and her husband is off fighting war. So what, 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 what David does is he calls Uriah back from the battlefront and, he, and hopes that, that he will sleep with his wife and cover David's tracks. 
Okay? He doesn't do that. He shows a lot of character. Um, he won't do it while, his men, while the men are out fighting on the, the battlefront. So what David has to do is essentially have him killed. Sends him back with this, his own death notice, this note that says to his commander, put this guy on the front of the, uh, the battle lines where he'll get killed, and that happens. And up to this point, David has no, he's not, he seems to have no shame about what he's done at this point until he's confronted by Nathan. And Nathan, this prophet, comes up to him and he tells him this story about two men, a rich man who had lots of sheep and cattle and a poor man who had nothing but a little lamb. And for this poor man, this lamb was like, he was like a little kid for him. So in the story, the traveler comes by and, uh, and the rich man is going to feed this traveler, but rather than take something from his, he's got all these cattle, all these sheep, rather than take something from there, he takes the little lamb from that poor man. And as rightfully so, when David hears this story, he is incensed. Surely, as the Lord lives, this man must die. You know, famously, Nathan says, you are this man. And what Nathan has done is he's, he's, he's essentially held up a mirror to David and exposed what he's done. So that's the Kind of like, just get in your mind, that's the story lurking behind. I, I, I don't know exactly how much that's playing into it, but that's what's behind there. And I think... Hopefully some of us can breathe a sigh of relief. It's like, whatever I am, I'm not a murderer. I'm not an adulterer. All right? So maybe we can feel better. Here's the challenge. Here's the challenge with the Bible. If you're serious about reading the Bible, the Bible is going to constantly do to you what Nathan did to David. The Bible is going to hold up a mirror to you, and you are going to see parts of you that you don't want to see, that you may not even be aware of. Uh, think back to our series on the Sermon on the Mount. You're not, we're not, hopefully not murderers like David. What about anger? You all struggle with anger? Am I the only one? Ever been angry at a person? Jesus has some pretty harsh words about anger. <laughs> Go read uh, the Sermon on the Mount again. Hope, adultery like David. Ever, ever looked at a woman lustfully? Okay. Right, you see this kind of mirror. How Jesus is going deeper. He's saying, okay, you, you look good on the outside, but let's go deeper. And in fact, in, in, our, in our Bible reading plan for this week, we just happened to come to the story, the parable in Luke about the Pharisee and the tax collector. And even if you didn't read it, you probably know this story. There's these two men that go to the temple to pray. Pharisee's very confident how good he is, how righteous he is. Thank God I'm not like that guy. <laughs> right. The other guy, just he won't even look up, beats his breast. God, have mercy on me, a sinner. That's the guy who goes away justified. Again and again, the Bible does what Nathan does to David. It puts a mirror in front of us, and it forces us to acknowledge the sin in our life. I mean, what's really fascinating about the Bible is you read the Bible, and the Bible starts to read you. You know you're getting deep into the Bible when you're like, oh, man, the Bible is reading me. The Bible is peering into my soul, into my secret place. That's the language of the psalmist, verses 5 and 6. Listen to this. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Yet you desired faithfulness even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. So David, whoever, the psalmist, whoever wrote this, I don't think this is a statement about the doctrine of original sin. You could, you know, some people go there. I think what he's saying is that there's never been a time in my life where it's not been surrounded by sin. I was born into a world marked by sin, and as I look back, there's always been sin. 
I want you to see how, look how transparent the psalmist is being here. He's allowing God into the secret places of his life, into the hidden places of his life, right? We have these secret places, these hidden places where sin lurks. We're not even always aware of where that is. And if we are aware of it, we do not want to go there. And yet the psalmist is saying, come into the secret place. Come into the hidden place. I remember one time I was, uh, when I was living in Illinois, Krishan and I were hosting this couple for supper, and we're having an interesting conversation, uh, to say the least. But at one point, the highlight, or the part I'll never forget of this conversation, was when the man said, dead serious, I don't sin anymore. Like, I didn't, I didn't know what to say. I was in shock. Like, What's that verse in 1 John? He turns to his wife and says, do I? I don't think she said anything, but like we could see by the look of her face that she had some thoughts about that comment. So if, as we're going around, if you're totally drawing a blank on your life and sin, like talk to your spouse. They, they, might, they might have some ideas. They, they get a pretty, or talk to somebody you live with. See, see, one of the reasons I think we don't want to go into this room is because we feel like we're failing, right? That's, that guy was on the right discipleship path. He has somehow gotten beyond sin, why am I not like that? I sure I haven't gotten beyond sin. Are we supposed to get beyond sin? Well, here's the, here's the fascinating thing about following Jesus. The closer you get to Jesus, the more you will notice the lingering sin that's keeping you from becoming like Jesus. The more you grow in holiness, the more you realize how short you fall. Talk to a disciple of Jesus who is advanced, who is farther down the road of discipleship than you, and, 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 and ask them about this. And you will not, do you think you'll hear them say, I, I got it, I nailed this discipleship thing? Like, I don't sin anymore? <laughs> no, what, what you will usually hear is something like, I have so far to go. I have so far to go. Right? So often when we become Christian, the really obvious areas of sin in our life, we're, we're already aware of those. We know those need to change, but as we grow, we become aware of things we didn't even know needed to be changed, of sin that's lurking in the secret place we didn't even know about. We need help seeing that. The psalmist here is modeling transparency. This is the first thing I want to see. If we're going to take this path on confession, if we're going to get to the joy of salvation, we're going to, we're going to traverse some tough territory. This is the first one, transparency, honesty. Like, we're going to have to be honest and confess the reality of sin in our lives. Like, we can't confess to, to God what we don't even know is there. Like, if we don't know our transgressions, we can't confess them. And I don't mean, like, we, we obsessively, like, go through our day and find every little thing we did. What I'm talking about is these areas of our life, these pattern of sin in our life, if we don't know what that is, we're not going to be able to confess that. There's going to have to be transparency. But we got to go beyond that. Look at verse 3. Look what the psalmist or David says. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Not only do we need to name the sin in our lives, but we need to hold that sin out in front of us. Like this is a great image. The psalms are so good at imagery. We've got this image of the psalmist holding out his sin in front of him. Why do we need to do it? We need to do it so we can mourn it. Okay, notice what the psalmist does. He doesn't try to minimize it. He doesn't soften what he's done. He doesn't say, you know, I've sinned. It was, you know, 
know, in the big scheme of things, it wasn't that big of a deal. I have sinned, and what I have done is evil. No euphemisms for sin here. I have sinned. It's hard to even say that sometimes, isn't it? We, we have all kinds of euphemisms that we use to kind of get around that. Notice, too, the psalmist, he's not blame-shifting. There's no excuses in this confession. It's not his friends that made him do this. It's not his upbringing that made him do this. It's not his parents that made him do it. It's not his wife that made him do it. It's not even human nature that made him do it. What caused the psalmist to do it? I did it. This is a clean confession. He doesn't minimize. He doesn't blame shift. He owns it and he mourns it. Like, why, why can't we just shoot up a quick prayer? Uh, God, forgive me my sins. Just keep going. That's kind of what we do. We just want to fire up a prayer and hope that it'll just kind of like be this like blanketing prayer that will cover all of this because we do not want to rest in that space. What's the problem with that? The problem is that we don't spend any time with the sin in front of us. A really important part of this journey of confession to the restoration of the joy of our salvation is holding the sin in front of us, is mourning it. Let me tell you, let me give you an example why this is important. Because we see this happen all the time. Somebody, every category of person, a public figure, a politician, a pastor, an athlete is having an affair, which they first try to cover up, right? That's the first move. Cover up doesn't work. Affair is exposed. Life blows up. Ever, ever heard of a story kind of like that? Does that sound familiar? Like David. And that's so interesting. This is like totally what happens all the time is what happened to David. Affair by a powerful man, tries to cover up, doesn't work, blows up. Like the more things change, the more they stay the same. What happens with that person is they, they are usually mourning. Like they'll get up, press conference, they're so upset about what's happening. But they're mourning the fallout of that sin. A couple days before, before they were caught, they were just fine. They weren't upset about that until they got caught. Do you see the difference? We can mourn the consequences of our sin, the fallout. That's not the same as mourning our sin. See, the psalmist is mourning his sin. That's different. He's not, he's not moving to a, a, a place of self-pity. Because a lot of times we think, oh, man, I, I sinned. Look at all the stuff that's happened, and we can move into a place of self-pity. We're not mourning what we did. We're mourning the consequences. Nobody likes the consequences of sin. That's different than mourning the sin. Why? Why do we need to mourn sin? Why do we need to hold sin? Why can't we just... Get it forgiven and get on with it. Partly because we enjoy sin. I, I remember years ago, I did a series on the seven deadly sins. You can find it uh, on the podcast uh, if you want to go back to that. Actually, it was kind of fun because we did the seven deadly sins, and then we stopped, and then we did the seven virtues. Actually, it was kind of a neat sermon series. Um, but here's what one of the things I took away from that sermon series. All the sins, they all feel good in some way, except for envy. Envy is a weird one. No, envy never feels good. But other than that, gluttony, lust, greed, anger, pride, they all feel good temporarily. But if we hold it in front of us long enough, we start to realize, man, there's some damage. There's some destruction that's happening with this sin. 
In the psalm, in verse 8, David says, let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Like this image of his bones are being crushed. Those bones, David, the psalmist, they're going to walk again, but that doesn't mean they're not going to walk with a limp. That doesn't mean that all those bones are going to heal up just perfectly. See, there's lingering consequences of sin in our life. We get crushed by them. We're going to to move to a place of healing, but sometimes we still limp a little bit after that. But we got to go further. We got to go further outside of ourselves because our sin doesn't just hurt us, it hurts those around us. There's collateral damage to our sin. David goes up on a walk one evening on his roof and he blows up his life. Guess whose lives he also blew up? Bathsheba's? Forced to have sex with the king, loses her husband, will lose a child. Bathsheba's life is blown up. Uriah, he's dead. His life is literally blown up. We, we hold out the sin in front of us. We realize it harms us, but no, no, there's collateral damage. The people around us are being... Do you see how this can move us now? Now we're starting to mourn our sin. This isn't something we can just fire off a prayer and move on. We've got to sit with this and feel the pain of it. But there's one more level that we've got to see too. Because it's not just an attack on ourselves. It's not just an attack on those around us. It's an attack on God. And this is, this is probably one of the more puzzling verses of the psalm. Verse 4. Against you, you only, this is the psalmist speaking, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. And that's a strange line because you're like, what about Bathsheba? If if that's the story behind this psalm, what about Bathsheba? What about Uriah? I think we clearly know that this sin of David's, if this is what this is referring to, goes well beyond God. But he says, I've sinned against you. Here's why I think this is important. If you peel back the layers of sin, what you will find is if you go down to the heart, you will find an attack on God. You will find that your sin is an assault on God. At the heart of sin is a rejection of God's way for our lives. So rather than accepting our position as a beloved child of God, we, we, we turn to our own abilities to manipulate, to intimidate, to deceive, to overpower others to get what we need because we don't trust God. This is why our story, the story of the Garden of Eden, is such an amazing story. Because what is the problem at the Garden of Eden? What is it that Adam and Eve are really struggling with? Is it because they love fruit so much? Is that the main problem in the story? No. They don't trust God. That's the problem. God has given them everything except that one tree, probably the best tree, they don't trust God. That is again and again, as we peel back the layers of sin, we will see again and again that the real problem is we do not trust God. Martin Luther, he said, we never break commandments two of ten of the ten commandments without first breaking the first commandment. The first commandment, as a reminder, is you shall have no other gods before me, no idolatry. What what does Luther mean? He says, you break the other ones, two to ten, you're going to break the first one. Let's Let's take an example, stealing. Okay, that's one of the Ten Commandments. A person steals. They break the Seventh Commandment. You shall not steal. But what's behind that? What if we peel that back? What's behind that? Well, there's a lot. There's the one, you're putting your trust more in money than you are God. There's a sin beneath the sin. We do this in so many ways. We are told uh, in the Ten Commandments, but most clearly in, in Jesus, not to kill. 
Guess what? We arm ourselves to the teeth. We arm our homes to the teeth. We arm our country to the teeth. Why? Jesus has made it very clear to us we cannot kill anyone. Why do we do that? We don't trust God. We trust our arms, our firearms, more than we do God. We do this in so many ways. David sleeps with Bathsheba. What's going on there? He wants the pleasure of being with another woman, yes, but what's beyond that? He's looking to that to meet his deepest need for, for affection and for love. and for He's not looking to God. He's looking to Bathsheba. There's always a sin beneath the sin. And so often that sin is we do not trust God. Last week we looked at Psalm 23, a psalm of trust. What do we say in those words? The Lord's my shepherd. I lack nothing. I got everything I need. Our actions tell a different story. Our actions tell us that we actually do not trust God to meet our needs. We do not trust God to refresh our souls. We do not trust God to protect us from evil. We do not protect God to meet our daily needs. And so we strike out on our own. Right? So the reason I'm going here for you is that we need to, we need to hold the sin in front of us to acknowledge it so that we can mourn it. Do you see the difference in doing this work with our sin and just saying, forgive us our sins and forgive us. I'm out of here. <laughs> That's like a superstitious prayer that we just hope, like, we rub the, rub the bottle, rub the genie, we hope we're good. That's not the work of repentance. Repentance is mourning sin. Why on earth would we do this? I don't want to go into this room. Why, why, why would any of us? Because, because God wants to heal us. Right? You've got to get back. Where are we going? We're, we're in some tough territory here. We're going to be in this next week. Where are we going? We're going to a place of healing and restoration. God wants to cleanse us. Look at the language in the psalm. Again and again, there's this language of washing, of cleansing. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. That's what the psalmist is holding out hope for. I'm going to be cleansed. God invites us into confession because God knows we need to be cleansed. We have guilty consciences. And we do this because God is going to transform us. We'll get to that next week, right? This isn't just, uh, we're going to mourn the sin, forgive the sin, and go on back and do whatever. There's going to be transformation. In fact, the psalmist will say, I'm going to go help people who are struggling with sin. I'm going to bring them back after you restore me. We'll get to that next week. But why? How do we do this? How do we move into this space, this room of confession? Because we believe that God's intentions for us are good. Do you believe that? Do you believe God's intentions for your good? Do you trust in the character of God? The psalmist does. Because look at the way, look at, he can throw himself at the mercy of God. He can move into this vulnerable space. He can hold his sin before him because he knows who God is. Look, look back at verse 1. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. Right? There's that Hebrew word I mentioned a few weeks ago, uh, hesed. God's covenantal, steadfast love. This isn't a love that's a fickle love like we're used to in our culture that goes up and down. No, this is a solid, covenantal, I'm with you to the end, steadfast love. According to your great compassion. We talked about this word, it's been a while when we were sharing the series on the Exodus and God reveals uh, the meaning behind his name, but it's the, 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 the root word in Hebrew is womb. It's womb love. I think the, the women in here... <laughs> We'll get this. There's like this deep love. 
The psalmist is comparing in this way the love of God of the love of a mother for a child. What's strong? Think about the love of a mother for a child. Think about that womb-like love. The psalmist is banking on those two things. You are steadfast and you have a womb-like love, and therefore I can throw myself at your mercy. That's the only way the psalmist is going to be able to move into this space to be transparent about his sin and to not be crushed, is that he realized the love and compassion of God is even bigger than his sin. However big his sin is, God's love and compassion is greater. That and that alone is why he can throw himself at the mercy of God. Same with us. Except we know even more. Who is it that meets us in the confession room? Who is it that meets us in that space? It's not an accuser. It's not a grandparent winking at us. It's not an unconcerned God. It's Jesus. When we go into the confession space, Jesus meets us there. And we hold out our sin. We're transparent with our sin. We mourn our sin because we acknowledge two things at the same time. We acknowledge the reality of our sin. And that's important. We can't minimize the reality of our sin. Why can't we not do that? Why can't we say this really isn't that big of a deal? Because here's the deal. If you minimize your sin, you minimize the cross. If your sin really isn't that big of a deal, why did God, through the person of Jesus Christ, have to go all through this to reconcile us to God? You're minimizing your sin. You're minimizing the cross. But you also have a problem if you say, I can't go into that space Because if it comes out what I did, God can't forgive me. You're also minimizing the cross. You're saying, wow, look at me. My sin is so big that even the cross can't handle that. Do do you realize the problem? You hear people say that. I don't think God could ever forgive me. Your sin is bigger than the cross? Really? I don't think so. Do you see why we have to hold these two things together? We have to be honest about our sin. We've got to hold our sin out before us. We've got to mourn that sin. And we've got to be totally honest about who God is and what was accomplished for us on the cross. That's where they come together. That's where the cross comes together, the seriousness of sin and the extreme heights of God's love and mercy. Let's pray. Oh, God, thank you for this ancient book, this Psalter that that comes up beside us and helps us in areas that we struggle to have words. We don't even want to go. That the psalmist is our guide that takes us and shows us and models us for us what confession looks like, Lord. I pray for us as we uh, prepare for our own communion in two weeks, Lord, as we move into this time where we do self-examination, where we ask, are we right with you? Are we right with our brothers and sisters, Lord? That you would not see this as a, that we would not see this as a crushing time a mournful time, but Lord, yes, this is a hard space, but it's a space to lead us to joy. And Lord, I just would help as you walk with us and walk through each person uh, in this congregation as we go through this. In Jesus' name, amen.